You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. As you're probably well aware, World War II was thrust upon the United States with the surprise attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor on December 7th of 1941. Until then, the war was half a world away and of, you know, distant concern to the average American. But then, as the country began mobilizing for war, it was quickly realized that the western coast of the United States was particularly vulnerable to attack. And sure enough, within weeks, Japanese submarines were lurking in the waters off the coast and attacking American merchant ships. From the Mexican border all the way up to Alaska, many were convinced it was only a matter of time before the Japanese launched a full-scale attack against the mainland. Everyone was on edge. In response, the military constructed bunkers and installed batteries of anti-aircraft guns up and down the coast, while the public prepared by practicing their air raid and blackout drills. Well, today we can easily look back and see that the anticipated Japanese invasion never took place. Yet the Japanese did make some minor and mostly failed attempts, you know, such as with their Fugo balloon program that I wrote about years ago in my book Einstein's Refrigerator, or with their use of submarines to attack the U.S. merchant ships, as I just mentioned. But one event of the war that is mostly forgotten today was the major battle that took place over Los Angeles just a few months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was but a brief blip in the global conflict, yet the U.S. used all of its might in an attempt to shoot down the enemy planes that were detected overhead. The sky was set ablaze with exploding shells as searchlights focused their beams and tracked the enemy aircraft high above. I am Steve Silverman, and today I present to you the story of the Great Los Angeles Air Raid. This is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. With that historic first sentence, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt began his December 8th address to a joint session of Congress. The brief speech would last just 6 minutes and 30 seconds. Then, 33 minutes after Roosevelt concluded, 
Congress would declare war against Japan. Now today, if you ask most people about December 7th of 1941, they'd probably just remember that was the day that Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, which I should mention is located on the island of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands. Someone just asked me about that the other day. But few are aware that Roosevelt added that Japan had also attacked Malaya, which is now Malaysia, Hong Kong, Guam, Wake Island, and the Philippine Islands that same exact day. Plus, on the morning of the speech, they further attacked Midway Island. Roosevelt's speech was broadcast live on the radio and was heard by an estimated 81% of all Americans, which just happened to be the largest listening audience up until that time. Its impact was immediate. The response to the speech was overwhelmingly positive, and Roosevelt had made his case to the American people as to why war was necessary. While the impending war seemed like a world away to the general public, you know, after all, Hawaii is nearly halfway across the Pacific Ocean, people understood it was only a matter of time before the Japanese would attack the west coast of the U.S. mainland. Of particular concern to the military was the fact that the West Coast had a large concentration of aircraft plants, and that would be tempting bait for the Japanese. There was Boeing in Seattle, Douglas and Lockheed in Los Angeles, and Consolidated, which later became Convair, in San Diego. Needless to say, coastal communities were in a nearly constant state of what would later be referred to as, quote, invasion fever. You know, the constant fear that a Japanese attack was underway. Now, the first invasion fever incident took place the same afternoon on which Roosevelt made his speech. Rumors spread that there was an enemy aircraft just off the coast of San Francisco, and the Army claimed that it attracted the planes approaching the coastline from about 100 miles or 161 kilometers from shore. This scare resulted in the closure of schools in Oakland, which lies right across the bay from San Francisco, And later that evening, a three-hour blackout was enforced and radio broadcasting ceased. Now, the next day, unidentified planes were reported off Southern California, and the 11th Naval District made preparations for battle. This was followed by a Navy report to the Army Air Force that they had spotted 34 enemy ships right off the coast of Los Angeles, and they were awaiting the lifting of the dense fog so they could attack. So Army airplanes took to the sky and soon discovered that the enemy ships were American fishing boats. What few realized was that the Japanese had no desire to bring their aircraft carriers anywhere near the coastline. You know, to do so would make them sitting ducks. So instead, submarines were sent in to do their dirty work. And while the subs were incapable of causing significant damage, they were certain to keep a nervous nation on edge. The first sub-attack occurred at 2.15 p.m. on December 20th of 1941. The SS Agriworld was 20 miles or 32 kilometers off Cypress Point, which is on the Monterey Peninsula of California, when the Japanese sub I-23 fired 14 artillery shells at her. The first shot it missed and exploded just off the stern of the ship. Luckily, Captain Frederick Consalves spotted the sub and he took evasive action and zigzagged the ship towards safe harbor. And while the sub continued its firing, the water proved to be too rough that day to get an accurate shot, and the sub soon submerged and disappeared. The Agworld and its crew were unharmed. 
About the same time that this was happening, a similar battle was occurring about 330 miles or 530 kilometers to the north. This time, the Japanese sub I-17 was firing at the SS Imidio. Unfortunately, the outcome would not be the same. Five shells and one torpedo were fired at the ship, with the torpedo piercing its engine room. Realizing that the ship was about to sink, the order to abandon ship was given. Surprisingly, the ship somehow stayed afloat with its stern under the water surface for quite some time, and it slowly drifted up the coast of California until it ran aground on the rocks off Crescent City in early January of 1942. But sadly, five of its crew members were killed during the attack. There were at least 13 other merchant ships attacked over the next two months, and as you can imagine... Residents feared it was only a matter of time before the Japanese launched their full-scale attack on the West Coast. And then it happened. At 7.15 p.m. on February 23rd of 1942, now this is just as President Roosevelt's delivering one of his famous fireside chats to the nation, the Japanese submarine I-17 surfaced near Goleta, California, which is about 12 miles or 19 kilometers west of Santa Barbara and it fired between 12 and 25 shells. I should point out this is the location of Elwood Field, which was an active oil drilling operation at the time. But the sub's main target was a Richfield Oil Aviation fuel tank. Now, as you can imagine, firing under darkness from a submarine in choppy waters, well, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. As a result, most of the shells landed in the water or they went way off course. Not a single one hit the tank. Now, one shell did hit an oil drilling rig, and it caused about $500 or about $9,500 today. It caused about $500 in damage to its catwalk and some pumping equipment. The next day, Naval Intelligence issued a warning that predicted an attack within the next 10 hours. Reports of blinking lights and flares being set off near the defense plants began to pour in. So a decision was made at 7.16 p.m. to issue an alert, during which all air raid wardens, police, firemen, Red Cross workers, and so on, they were all told to stand by for further orders. Then the alert was rescinded at 10.23 p.m. and everyone breathed a great sigh of relief. But it was not to last. Around 1.45 a.m. on February 25th, An unidentified blip was picked up at approximately 120 miles or 193 kilometers from Los Angeles, and it was headed right for the city. Now, keep in mind that radar was a relatively new technology, and radar units, well, they were far and few between the time. So the radar operators decided to track the signal for a bit to make sure that it was real, and they concluded that it was. So at 2.25 that morning, the 4th Interceptor Command Regional Controller called for a blackout of the city of Los Angeles and its surrounding area. That extended all the way down to the Mexican border. This included Santa Monica to the north, Long Beach and Huntington Beach to the south, and westward to the foot of the mountains. 22 minutes later, airplanes were reported in the vicinity of Long Beach. Two minutes after that, a Coast Guard artillery colonel observed, quote, about 25 planes at 12,000 feet, which is about 3.65 kilometers. It was clear what was happening. The Japanese were doing exactly what everyone had feared. Los Angeles was under attack. 
And within minutes, the sky was illuminated by hundreds of 800 million candle power military searchlights, and they directed their beams to the sky in search of the enemy airplanes. Down in Long Beach, an estimated 20 searchlights, they converged on a group of planes. Then, moments later, the anti-aircraft guns opened fire and the heavens lit up with exploding shells. Shrapnel began to rain down from the sky. But they weren't alone. Similar battles were taking place in other locations along the coast, with the bulk of the activity taking place in the vicinity of the aircraft plants. The enemy planes came in two waves, and uh, both started in the north near Santa Monica, and then they slowly headed south through Inglewood and southern Los Angeles before finally heading out to sea at Long Beach. Tracer bullets and exploding shells lit up the heavens, while the concussion of the anti-aircraft fire, well, it could be felt as far as 15 miles away. That's 24.1 kilometers. Down on the ground, there was far less panic than anyone could imagine. Knowing that this day would inevitably come, there had been an incredible amount of preparation and practice done, so they were ready. More than 10,000 air raid wardens in the Los Angeles area, they quickly responded to the call and did exactly what they had been trained to do. They immediately used their air raid sirens to alert the public, which actually proved to be quite effective, even though afterward it was learned that less than one quarter of those that had been purchased were installed and working properly. Now, since many of us have never experienced an air raid alarm, let me just tell you that the warning signal would be a rising and falling pitch for two minutes straight. And of course, that meant jumping into action and following the blackout rules. And once all the danger had passed, the all-clear signal was a steady, non-fluctuating blast for another two minutes. Now, if this ever happened in my town today, my hunch is a few of us would know what it means. Did you know? The rules were fairly straightforward. First, no illumination could be seen from the outside. That meant all outside lights need to be extinguished, but you could still use interior lights provided that, you know, your windows were masked. No light could leak out. Also, driving was forbidden, so if the alarm sounded, all vehicles had to pull to the side of the road, turn off the ignition, remove the key, and the occupants were expected to find shelter in the nearest building. And if that was impossible, they told to lie face down on the ground. Total radio silence was called for, and use of the telephone was forbidden, of course, unless it was for emergency purposes. Residents were told not to turn the gas off, but should it be required, they should have a wrench handy. And once the all-clear was given, they should contact a trained gas man to turn it back on. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So here's the stories of two people describing what they experienced that night. Reporter Jules Kinsler, writing for the International News Service shortly after the action began, wrote, quote, Running out in our nightclothes, we saw the searchlights converging on a single point and moving slowly across the sky from the direction of Santa Monica and Malibu Beach to Inglewood, San Pedro, Wilmington, and Long Beach on the southeast. Most of the anti-aircraft shells burst well below the convergence of the searchlight's beams. A few apparently from a single gun flash right in the center of the focal point of the lights in rapid succession. She added, There must have been at least 20 searchlights trained on the plane. A neighbor told me she counted 22. All the neighbors were on their porches or in the street. They huddled together, shivering in their nightclothes. In May 2001, 85-year-old Emily Hillel told of her experience to the Los Angeles Times. At the time of the attack, she was 26 years old and her husband Lloyd was serving in the military. She was at home with her four-and-a-half-year-old son, Michael. Now, they just happened to live next door to an empty lot that contained one of those anti-aircraft batteries. Quote, The one night we heard shooting, I ran and grabbed Michael and we sat on the floor in the hallway and Lloyd's mother dashed over to see if we were okay. We were scared to death. It sounded like it was overhead. We felt sure that we were going to be killed. We just sat there and held hands and prayed. It wouldn't be until 7.21 a.m., that's a few minutes before sunrise, that the all-clear signal was given. The enemy was clearly now gone, and now it was time to deal with the fallout of what had transpired over the previous five hours. What seems crazy is that perhaps the most noticeable thing in the aftermath was what was described as, quote, the worst traffic jam in local history. You see, with all the traffic having been frozen during the entirety of the blackout, suddenly everyone realized that they were late for work. And not only were the cars, trucks, and taxis not moving, but the streetcars, they were filled to capacity, and they left hundreds of people stranded on street corners. So many people just made a decision to hoof it. You know, they walked to work, even if the distance was great. Now, a Japanese plane has supposedly been shot down at the intersection of 190th Street and Vermont Avenue. So the curious came from all around to see the plane, and that clogged the street in all directions. And what did they find out? There was no plane there at all. And while there was no Japanese airplane outside of her office, Lucille Martindale arrived to work to find a six-room house parked at the curb. Mover Jeff Gordon explained what happened. Quote, I was moving the house when the air raid alarm sounded. All I could do was pull over to the curb and park. Well, it turns out that city regulations only allowed him to move the house between midnight and dawn. And of course, they were after dawn, so the house was stuck there for the remainder of the day. There were many reports of damage from the anti-aircraft shells and fragments. One shell exploded near the southwest Los Angeles home of Hugh Landis, and it showered him, his wife Bess, her sister Blanche Sedwick, and their niece, that's 14-year-old Jesse Duffy, with debris. While no one was injured, 
The bed in which Blance and Josie had just been sleeping in moments before, it was ripped apart. In addition, windows were shattered, the garage door was ripped off, and the gasoline tank on Mr. Landis's car was punctured. Mr. and Mrs. George Watson of Santa Monica was startled out of bed when an unexploded shell buried itself deep in their concrete driveway. She described what happened. Quote, I saw the flash and then we heard a hissing sort of screaming sound. My husband said, That's a bomb coming. Then we heard it hit. There was a funny kind of burning smell. We rushed outside in our nightclothes. My husband looked down in the hole it had torn in the driveway. Well, Mr. Watson, who was a plaster, opted to go to work and leave his wife to deal with that mess. The police came, roped off the area, and they posted a sign, quote, Closed area, unexploded bomb. And they awaited the arrival of the Army demolition team to defuse it. And then there were the scores of windows that were smashed all around the region. Now, I should tell you there was no looting. Instead, the windows were shattered by either the concussion of the exploding shells or by air raid wardens who, should they be unable to locate the proprietor, had the legal permission to smash the glass if they needed to turn off a glowing light. Yet this premise backfired on 36-year-old Joaquin P. Tapia. You see, he saw the lights on in Mandel's jewelry store, which was located 105 South Broadway in Los Angeles, and he self-appointed himself as air raid warden. So he picked up a garbage can and he threw it through the plate glass window. Police came and arrested him, of course, thinking that he was attempting to rob the jewelry store. But Tapia protested, quote, Hell no, I wasn't trying to break into the place. I was trying to put that light out. Well, store owner Max Mandel confirmed that nothing had been stolen, but officers still threw Tapia in jail on a charge of malicious mischief. There were numerous stories about people and businesses failing to turn out their lights. 21 Santa Ana merchants were fined $50 each. That's about $950 today. Although in the end, the judge later reduced it to $5 each and warned the violators not to do it again. Los Angeles Times reported that 21-year-old Justin Cooley had the honor of being the first person to be sentenced for violating the blackout. You see, Santa Monica police arrested him for hitting an air raid warden's car. Cooley had hit it while he was driving with his headlights off. The judge in the case sentenced Cooley to 30 days in jail with time to be served on his days off, and that was so it wouldn't interfere with his airplane production work. 57-year-old produce dealer Giovanni Shigo was arrested for refusing to turn out his lights, as was 21-year-old Ernest Vanderlinden, who refused to turn out his barn lights while he was out milking the cows. Then there's 32-year-old Ray Allen Elwinger, who refused to stop driving his car along Beverly Boulevard in Beverly Hills, and he was arrested after he told police to, quote, go to hell. And then there are the humorous blackout stories. For example, the lights on the Universal City Bridge burned for more than 30 minutes after the blackout was called. Why? Very simple. That's because the man in charge of extinguishing the lights lived more than 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers away. When Air Raid Warden Ray Cabot spotted light leaking from the front door of a Santa Monica house, he began to walk up the front stairs. But before he got to the top, a woman opened the door and questioned, Are they real guns? Cabot replied, 
I'm afraid they are. She then fainted in his arms. And let's not forget what happens to people when they attempt to move around in the dark. They get hurt. For example, Air Raid Warden Charles W. Hoffman, he fractured his right hip after falling from a three-foot or one-meter-high rock wall while attempting to check on the lights in an apartment building. Thomas G. Barber, he attempted to outdo Hoffman. He had a jump of fence to get to a house with its lights on, and he sprained his ankle. Lieutenant Walter Lauder suffered a laceration on his right leg when he kicked in the plate glass window of a store that had a light on. Radio announcer William Stokey, he decided to run to work and suffered a deep cut above his right eye. Why? Because he couldn't see where he was going and he ran into an awning. Long Beach resident Clyde Lane, like many others, decided to watch the anti-aircraft fire, but unfortunately a piece of shrapnel fell from the sky and injured his scalp. And both Marie Charles and Roy Campbell, who were both 71 years of age, they were injured when they fell down the stairs in their homes. I should mention that Campbell was hurrying to his air raid warden post when that happened. While some of these arrests and injuries are a bit quirky, there was a serious side to all of this. You see, five days prior to the aerial attack on Los Angeles, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, that authorizing internment of Japanese Americans. You know, ultimately resulting in nearly 120,000 people being relocated, two-thirds of whom were American citizens, the general public at the time was deeply suspicious of anyone who was of Japanese descent. And because of this, a total of 20 people were arrested. While some had simply violated the blackout regulations, others were arrested on suspicion of attempting to signal the invaders, and they were referred to the FBI. For example... Three members of the Ojai family who lived at 1505 Oceanfront Avenue in Venice, they were arrested when the lights in their second-floor apartment above their cafe were observed to flash on and off. The saddest news was that five people died because of the attack. 63-year-old Henry B. Ayers suffered a fatal heart attack while at the wheel of an ammunition truck. 36-year-old air raid warden George P. Weil was on duty when he also had a heart attack so he was taken to his home where he soon passed away. Then 59-year-old Long Beach Police Sergeant E. Larson, he was traveling to his air raid post when he was killed in a traffic accident. Mrs. Beulah Klein was killed when a car driven by her husband Harry during the blackout collided with a milk truck. And the last victim was Jesus Alvarez, who was fatally injured when he walked right into the side of a moving automobile. I can only give a guess here, but most likely all these vehicles were traveling with their headlamps off. Yet the population did grow that night. A blackout and flying shrapnel simply weren't enough to stop Mr. Stork from taking to the skies. Fourteen babies were reported born in the area hospitals, plus there was at least one home birth. When Dr. Costello Bray arrived at the residence of Mrs. Lorene Nicholas, he had no choice but to deliver 8-pound William Dallas Nicholas under the glow of flashlights. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
So just what happened that night? I mean, what was everyone shooting at? Well, here's audio from CBS's News of the World that was broadcast that very day. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. A slow-moving blimp? I mean, what happened to the enemy airplanes that they were trying to shoot down? Well, that's a mystery that still remains unanswered. Shortly after the hostilities came to an end, the 4th Army, which was headquartered in San Francisco, issued the following statement. Cities in the Los Angeles area were blacked out at 2.25 a.m. today on orders from the 4th Interceptor Command when unidentified aircraft were reported in the area. Although reports were conflicting and every effort is being made to ascertain the facts, it is clear that no bombs were dropped and no planes were shot down. There was a considerable amount of anti-aircraft firing. The all-clear signal came at 7.21 a.m. Later that day, U.S. Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox told the press that it was, quote, just a false alarm. There were no planes over Los Angeles last night, at least that's our understanding. He continued, None have been found, and a very wide reconnaissance has been carried on. Less than one day after the battle with possibly no one, the Los Angeles Times published a rare front-page editorial that sought a better explanation from the military as to what had just taken place. Quote, It seems to the Times that more specific information should be forthcoming from government sources on the subject, if only to clarify their own so far conflicting statements about it. But instead, in typical government bureaucratic fashion, further explanations just muddied the water. Secretary of War Henry Stimson offered up conclusions of an Army report, which was based on the information provided by West Coast Army officials. Quote, As many as 15 planes may have been involved flying at various speeds, from what is officially being reported as very slow to as much as 200 miles an hour, at an elevation of from 9,000 to 18,000 feet. And the Army offered up two theories as to where these planes came from. First, they may have been commercial planes launched from secret airfields in either California or Mexico and operated by the enemy. Alternatively, the planes may have been light aircraft that were launched from Japanese submarines. Stimson added, quote, The only comment I myself have to make is perhaps it is better to be alert then not alert enough. At any rate, they were alert there. Another report was issued by the War Department on March 2nd of 1942. It said that Army-operated listening devices had clearly detected a small number of approaching airplanes, which it believes were launched from Japanese submarines and were on reconnaissance missions over Southern California. 
Of course, politicians express their outrage, and they promise that there'd be congressional investigations into what had transpired. Yet in the end, it was all hushed up. Neither the Army, the Navy, nor the politicians were willing to accept the blame. Plus, let's face it, there was a real war going on that required every bit of their focused attention. Over the years, additional theories have been suggested. Military reports typically concluded that the sighting of an errant weather balloon triggered the battle, although no balloon or blimp was ever recovered. Others have suggested that it was a test conducted by the military to see if the West Coast was ready for an attack, but no proof of that theory has ever been found. And then, starting in the 1970s, some began suggesting that it was UFOs, and that's mostly based on their analysis of a Los Angeles Times photo that was purposely doctored when it was first printed. I should point out that this was common practice at the time because it allowed for finer details in black and white images to be clearer to their readers. But most people have since concluded that that battle that took place in the skies over Los Angeles during the early morning hours of February 25, 1942, was just a case of jittery nerves. There were probably never any enemy airplanes flying overhead, and that's a fact that was confirmed by the Japanese after the war ended. The military was expecting the Japanese to attack the mainland at any moment, and once that first shot was mistakenly fired into the air, the bursts of the anti-aircraft shells were mistaken for enemy planes. Couple that with an over-eager defense force that was inexperienced in using the new radar equipment, and it's easy to see how the whole thing just spiraled out of control. Right after it happened, Secretary Knox offered up the simplest explanation, and it probably was the correct one. It was all just a false alarm. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I have to admit I've always liked that story on the Los Angeles Air Raid, and I thought it'd be interesting to go back and read the actual newspaper reports from 1942, you know, instead of relying on other people's retelling of the story. It really was a fun one to do. Now, just a reminder that you can find the Useless Information Podcast on all the leading podcast platforms. And that includes Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, please do so through my email at steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can also use Facebook Messenger, and you can also use the contact form that you can find on the website. That's uselessinformation.org. My Twitter handle's at uselessinfocast, and be sure to like the show on Facebook. Anyway, thanks as always for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.